You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. This month on The Vet Chat, we have Kate Hill. Kate is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and is also a registered veterinary specialist with the Australasian Veterinary Boards Council. Kate is a director of the Centre for Service and Working Dog Health, was a member of the Companion Animal Society Executive and is now on the NZBA board. Kate completed her PhD on transdermal methamazole in cats in 2015 and in 2017 accepted the role as director of the Masters of Veterinary Medicine, which she still runs today. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Vet Chat. Thanks. It's it's great to speak to you, Stephen. So my background is obviously I'm a um, veterinarian. I went through the University of, of Queensland, so I'm a Queensland graduate, grew up in Queensland, spent some time in, in private practice in, in Queensland, and then did my internship at Queensland University, and then took that as a good opportunity to, to springboard into a residency program in the, the US. So I spent some time at Purdue University doing my small animal medicine um, specialty training. So I spent ended up spending four and a half years at Purdue. I stayed on after my residency as a uh, clinical track uh, faculty and then got a um, position at University of Tennessee. So I moved there for uh, nearly two years. And then took the opportunity when position at Massey came up to uh, move back to the Southern Hemisphere. So came in 2005 to Massey. So it was a slightly circuitous route. So we've been in New Zealand pretty much since 2005 and, and love it. Yeah, so I actually remember being lectured by you at Massey. And I remember correctly in fourth or fifth year, you used to do those workbooks, which yep. is quite refreshing because there's plenty of lecturers who focus far too much on the theory and not enough on the actual act- practical application of the degree. So myself and others found it really helpful and useful that you actually would give us cases and apply that back. Let's, um, yeah, thanks for that. It's interesting you say that because we had some uh, this is some positive and negative feedback about that. But maybe you hear more about the brick bats than you do about the people that actually enjoy it. So it's lovely to hear that people still enjoyed it then. And, and I guess part of my passion has, has always been uh, education and actually about making it real world for people. And so bringing clinical cases in from a, you know, whenever it was sort of even classroom teaching just was the way to produce those hooks that people could actually think there's no point in just talking and nausing about something. It needs to be really practical for, for people to, to apply it. And so that was way before digital kind of stuff. So it was printing out books and, and hoping people would use them. So sort of was trying to create some, some practicality. And I'm glad that glad at least you enjoyed it and a few others. So that's good. <laughs> so what uh, are your main roles at Massey now? Uh, so now I have moved really into the education space completely. So I am director of the Masters of Veterinary Medicine, which is the online masters. So we've got taught courses that step you know postgraduate vets through through taught courses, and then most of the time end up in a research report or, or practicum to finish off the masters. So I'm not actually doing any clinical work at this time. 
but I guess it's sort of been a progression through my career of kind of just really wanting to uh, help people progress um, in their own careers and really get the most out of people's education and, and really inspire people to be thinking about how they can be the best fit they possibly can be and, and keep people engaged and inspired in their career and progression. And is most of the master's stuff done as distance learning? Yeah, so we're 100% distance. So all of our courses are online. We usually have some contact courses which have been historically face-to-face. Last year, nothing was face-to-face, even our contact courses because of COVID. And we still haven't really got the okay to have them um, face-to-face. So we've had to use that dreadful word of pivot completely, but we've worked out some pretty good ways of having Zoom-based courses and and the last few we've had have have been really interactive and people have really enjoyed the contact that they've had. It's been a shame. You can't really replace that cup of tea conversation physically with someone in the room, but we've still managed to put in times where you can actually talk to small groups, talk to each other. We've had one-on-ones with Zooms of talking to students and made it as good as we possibly can. It it just really doesn't replace that cup of tea over a scone, which we always like to have scone day at our contact courses, but it's as good as we've been able to get with this situation of that COVID thing that's been going on. So, yeah. So in terms of the the masters, what sort of numbers of vets are you getting through and how are you sort of encouraging people to get involved in a master's? Yeah, so we are a international master's, so we've got about 30% of our students come from outside of New Zealand that predominantly is still the sort of Southern Hemisphere, so Australia and Asia. Uh, We still get the odd one enrolling from maybe the UK and North America and um, other places, but predominantly sort of Southern Hemisphere. And then the 70% would be our domestic market so either Massey grads or people who are um, residing in in New Zealand so we kind of spread the word as as much as we can a lot of it is word of mouth through previous students we do a fair bit of advertising throughout all our veterinary magazines and conferences that we can get to and again haven't been able to get to any conferences in the last 12 months but it's good word of mouth so we have about 200 enrolled each year across all of our courses in our what we call our capstone courses so then in our final sort of capstone, which is where they either do a research report or a um, literature review, or it can be a practicum, we've had consistently about 20, 25 in those. So about sort of 100, 180, 175 to 180 in the taught courses. And this is specifically Masters of Vet Medicine? Yeah, this is veterinarians only. Yep. So this is for the Masters of Veterinary Medicine. Yeah. Yep. And what sort of percentage of those would be actual Kiwi or Massey grads? We um, have 70%. Are domestic. Of the domestic, oh, probably the vast majority of those are. Um, well, actually, no, I would see, be. Yeah. Would that be key? Oh, I suppose you would get the odd one from overseas that's then moved to New Zealand. And yeah, so we do yeah. get the ones that aren't domestic to New Zealand. But when you actually probably say, you know, what thirty, forty percent of our workforce may not actually be from from Massey, but they're living in New Zealand. So yeah, probably about I guess on average, probably fifty percent would be at least the Massey grads. Probably more. I'd say probably seventy percent Massey. But yeah, we've got people who who work and live in New Zealand that aren't Massey grads. So in terms of the masters itself. Speaking from a personal point of view and um, talking to other vets is being a vet is quite busy, obviously with a, quite a busy job and then a lot of vets doing after hours. What advice would you give to people that were considering doing a, 
a master's that are sort of on the fence, especially in terms of the workload? Yeah, so we're really, really cognizant of the workload because currently everyone is short-staffed, everyone is overworked anyway, and you can't always say that you're just doing 37 and a half hours a, a week as a veterinarian. So to add another course for hours, which is you know about 150 hours per taught course, you know, on top of that, it looks like a significant amount. What we try and sort of talk people through is that, yes, there's going to be some reading and, and there's going to be some online work that you, you need to do, but you are often still thinking about it and doing it within your day job because they're practical courses, particularly like our emergency course, which I often recommend people do first. The comments we have when people do that is consistently decreasing their stress in their everyday life because they feel so much more confident dealing with their emergencies and just giving them that sort of knowledge that they feel like they can do it. So that's been really good to to hear people say it's really decreases their stress at the end of the course because they put a bit of work into doing it. And the other thing that we say that we are different to professional development is that to get it at that master's level, that we are not necessarily spoon feeding the content. There's often a collaborative content creation. So the students are actually creating some of the content themselves. They're asked a question, they have to find the answer and create the content. So we're providing people with the skills of actually finding the answers and finding out why. So quite literature driven, which means that if something changes, you have the ability to understand why that changes in you know two, three, four, five, six, seven years. So it's creating those lifelong learners as well. So that's kind of my take for people is that it really gets you enthused in why you've done this. You really get the answer and you become that lifelong learner and you're just not bored because you can understand why things change and, and go with the creation of knowledge and, and be part of that creation of knowledge. And is there a set length of time for a master's or does it sort of vary depending on which master's you're doing? Yeah, so our master's of veterinary medicine, because it's always part-time, it's 120 credits, which can be done full-time in one year. But because ours is part-time, the university sort of says that it should be done within four years. So that's kind of the university time limit. We can work with people to get some extensions. The, the research masters are more commonly done full-time and, and they're sort of done in two years, but our sort of taught course ones are part-time about four years. If you do more, you can do more courses, but realistically, people sort of doing one course a year is what most people can cope with. Some people take some time out and do a few courses and then build through it quickly. And it just depends on people's life. Everyone's got something else going on in their life. So, you know, whether it's family or whether it's animals or whether it's something else going on. So we appreciate that. So we just set people up for what they can do in amongst their life. And in um, terms of your role, is it entirely within the masters or do you still have some involvement with the vet school? Um, not with the undergraduates adjuncts at the moment. So I'm entirely with the masters of veterinary medicine at this stage. So yeah, I don't have any undergraduate teaching currently. Yeah. I was just having a look at your profile on um, the Massey page and it mentions that you have been previously involved with the working dog centre. Are you still involved with that? Yeah, so I was one of the initial directors that set the working dog centre up and and still involved as as a director and we've continued that. It's still a virtual centre, it's not like it's not a bricks and mortar research centre, but still the aim of that is to increase the amount of um, knowledge we have about working dogs both you know within this country and 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 outside so 
there are other working dog centres like Cindy Otto has one set up at the University of, of Pennsylvania, which is a physical centre now. And that's doing a lot of training of olfactory scent work in dogs and police dogs and, and that sort of thing. Ours is a bit different because, yes, we've got the police dogs and the guide dogs, which we've always been affiliated with, but we really wanted to make sure that there was that farm dog research as well, which is quite unique to New Zealand. And so we've managed to continue uh, with research grants and to continue the, the research in the farm dogs here and had some PhD students and one that's just finished and to, to really increase and in the awareness and get some of the, the research out that's applicable to New Zealand within the working farm dog sector. Is there a particular area of research focus for the working dogs? Uh, not particularly. So we do a research grant application call each year so we've got some um, research money that we can put out and that's open to anybody it's usually encouraged to work with someone within the working dog center so that could be anything from police dogs or guide dogs to working farm dogs so so we're thinking about trying to get into a little bit of the scent dog research but essentially we just want to increase the amount of research in, in working dogs and make sure that there's enough research that's applicable to New Zealand out there Andrew Worth has done a lot in the police dogs with lumbosacral disease and there's been a lot of work in the um, farm dogs in their orthopaedic disease, so just diseases that are, are applicable to, to the New Zealand setting. If I remember correctly, um, there was a bit of a focus when I was at Massey or maybe towards the end of my time there on working dog nutrition. Correct, yeah. So there has been gone from no information on working dog nutrition to within you know, with the New Zealand context, a moderate amount of information that is out there now with the working dog nutrition. So yeah, we've managed to get more of that out there and people are recognising the role of, of nutrition within New Zealand working farm dogs. So that's really good. For vets and farmers listening, is there anywhere you'd recommend sort of pointing them to in terms of working dog nutrition to get more information? Yeah, I would probably say most of the veterinarians that work in that area have got some good resources. The bottom line is that they need to be fed quality quality food to get a quality working dog. So speaking with the local veterinarian and the veterinarian needs some further information, then I'd point towards some of the research that Nick Cave has done and Royal Canaan have put some work into that. So it would be trying to up speed sort of looking at what the research is out there. Good to know. And another thing that was mentioned is your involvement with the NZVA. Are you still significantly involved there? Yeah, I've been involved with NZVA probably pretty soon after I arrived in New Zealand. So I have always been involved with the Companion Animal Society, or now Companion Animal Vets, and then have been on the board of NZVA for the last three years and coming up for re-election on that. So we'll see if I get elected for another three years. We'd be um, happy to happy to continue on. But yeah, it's been an interesting last three years being on the board and interesting last year when we were supposed to have the World um, Veterinary Congress that again got cancelled with that COVID word. So we were all prepared for that and I was pretty heavily involved with trying to get that conference program up and running and we're all ready to go about this time yeah. last year. We cancelled it. So yeah. Yeah, oh, it must have been pretty frustrating because I can imagine you probably were uh, not that far off having done all the work to to get it good to go. Yeah, we'd put an awful lot of work into to getting the program. It was going to be a great program and it was going to be great to get all these speakers into New Zealand and, and have another. We had Oh, I can't remember now, it's probably seven, 800 vets registered 
you know, really early and we were looking for that final run of registrations would have been a really fun time. And it was pretty gutting to have that physically taken away. The gain pivoted and, and got some delivered online, but yeah, you can't get away from it. it would have been a fabulous Auckland conference, but anyway, not, not to be. Is there um, a plan to have it in the future? Uh, not currently. It's sort of done what it could do. So having the virtual event is, is done what it could do. We were offered to re-host it again in a in a few years, but just with the uncertainty of knowing what conferencing is happening, we might look at that in a few more years, but not not right now. Don't think anyone's adrenal glands can cope with them. Um, yeah, exactly. Now. Yeah, do all that work again for <laughs> just the same thing to happen would just be gutting. Yeah, yeah. So in, in terms of your involvement with the NZVA, what do you sort of see as the direction that the NZVA is going in at the moment or I guess the focus of the NZVA? Yeah, it's been through um, a significant change in the last few years to make it fit for purpose. And so it's 100 years of the NZVA coming up and, and I think we can all appreciate that the world's changing and, and we all need to go with it and, and see what organisations can bring for their members and it's a member-driven organisation. So with the, the changes of the veterinary profession, with the corporatisation, all that sort of thing, some of the things that the NZVA was doing wasn't really for the members. So we've taken a big navel gazing and time to actually then speak with with everyone. And we have to remember that we are all, if you're an NZVA member, we are the NZVA. So we have to we have to drive it. As the board, we're kind of the ones at the pointy end to actually make some of those hard decisions. So I think that we've in a really good place to help the profession, to serve the profession and to and to serve the members now. And, and we have a pretty clear direction from, well, the members that speak up, what the members want. And I think that we can say we're pretty fit for purpose for the next, you know, probably 10, 15 years until we probably do the same thing. But it's really making sure that we're there for the members and delivering what the, the members um, want. And, and part of that was putting in the member advisory group, which is making sure that member voice feeds through the whole organisation and that the great advocate for, for the profession, that's one of the things that's come through, is kind of being making sure we're there as, a, as good advocates for the profession when it's in the profession's in the spotlight for whatever reason with... Um, you know, whether it be the veterinary shortage, which has got a lot of publicity recently and, and there's been lots of advocacy there to try and increase the number of vets that we can get in and just make sure that that voice is heard to the public and, and for the members. Is it fair to say that one of the focuses from the NZVA, or at least the impression that I get, is one of the focuses is on the well-being of vets from a mental point of view? Yeah, correct. So that has been a big focus and, and that has come from making sure that we keep keep people within the profession and keep people feeling that their well-being, I mean, I guess well-being throughout all of our lives is becoming a pretty hot topic, isn't it? You, you can't go anywhere without hearing about it wherever you're reading or whatever you see. So vets are potentially not always that great at actually understanding how they need to look after themselves and then get to a point where they go, oh, you know, I'm done with this and, and so then potentially leave their profession. So we're trying to make well-being a focus from the beginning so people understand that, yes, we all need to look after ourselves and well-being can be a really wide umbrella as well. So people taking what they want out of it, but well-being is a big direction and that has also come from the members saying that that's what's wanted as well. Because even in my time as a vet, I've seen a big shift or at least a noticeable shift in what it's like to be a vet. And I think one of the the problems in it, part of it comes down to the corporatisation, but it's also 
due to how people perceive their pets now is that a lot of people they're no longer the dog that sleeps outside but it's more becoming the perception of the the fur baby and another member of the family and I think how that's affecting vets not just in New Zealand but throughout the world is that the standard of expectation is getting higher and higher the issue that we have is unlike doctors is you can't just be a GP or a surgeon I feel like the expectation is that we perform at the level of a specialist from that yeah from the get-go we could be doing GP work and then the next thing we're doing a gut surgery and then the next thing we're doing diagnostics or the next thing we're out on a farm Mm. I think it's really hard for us to keep up with the standard of expectation that's coming through from the public and if I had to put my money on them the main reason that's causing the well-being issues in vets and one of the biggest reasons why a lot of vets are leaving the profession is for that reason yeah yeah and I I think that we need to yeah manage that expectations and that can be where some of the advocacy comes in and we've certainly seen worldwide the increase in pets in this year with with COVID and the huge increase in numbers of people going to the veterinarian with COVID and we haven't quite unpicked all of those but probably it's people working from home having that companionship recognizing when something is is wrong and they're really in tune with their certainly their animals at 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 home anyway and so that has put a huge stress I think around the world on on some of the veterinary practices so yeah we'll be interested to see how that how that kind of plays out but yeah and I think the other thing that you talk about there is leaving the profession and we have to be careful to sort of really define what leaving the profession means and you're sitting there speaking to me as a as an industry vet and some people consider that leaving their profession where it's not we you know we've got so many avenues that we can work within the profession and and there's none of this you know dark side good side sort of thing like we've got different avenues and, and that I just hear people say that and it really annoys me and but you know there's so many ways that you've seen my career has been you know circuitous and it's not saying that I won't come back to clinical practice at this stage but there is different things that's fit for purpose in your time of life and you may take different pathways and you may come back full circle or you may just keep moving through so we also need to recognize that our profession has many different avenues that we can be in and it isn't 100% clinical practice and I think people need to be comfortable with that as well. And people want to be challenged in different ways so what got you excited in your your 20s might not get you excited in your 30s and it's not just in vet but in any profession absolutely people want to potentially go down a different avenue yeah and there's different times of your life where you can cope with different things and it depends on what's juggling you know you've got to take your whole life into consideration isn't it and so so sometimes there might be kids or there might be extra family members that are dependent on you and so you can't do x number of things which may not be on call or it may be not doing this and so you can only juggle so many things in your whole life so it may be yeah changing slight pathways yeah You've obviously sort of strayed away from the clinical vet work, at least directly. What would be the area that gets you most passionate? Always my area that's been most passionate is actually seeing those light bulb moments in others. And that can either be undergrads, because almost except for one or two years of my career, I've always had veterinary students or interns uh, around me. So it's always been that great passion of actually seeing people have their, their light bulb moment and actually teaching them at the same time and all, all of us learning together. So now it's seeing light bulb moments in the postgraduate veterinarians, which sometimes is even more exciting because when you're an undergrad, 
you don't know what you don't know, right? And so you yeah. just go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I can. That's that's kind of cool. But when you get the postgrad vets coming back in, they've been there, they've done that, and then they go, wow, I have always done it this way and now I totally understand or wow I just found all this information that I didn't know and you go fantastic so it's really lovely to I think those light bulb moments are bigger in postgraduate veterinarians so that's always been exciting for me and and helping them create that and we just co-learn when I'm doing my courses it's a collaborative learning I'm learning at the same time as they're learning it's a lovely kind of environment to be in one area that I did want to take this interview was we always want to have a little bit of an educational part to the podcast. I guess if we're going to uh, put a specialty on you, I see you did a PhD in transdermal methamazole. Yeah, so my PhD was in transdermal methamazole and the reason I did that is because when I started, gosh, was that probably um, in 2007, 2008 when I was first sort of hatching up that idea, there was pretty much no information out there about there was one or two papers on on transdermal drugs in cats and that just annoys me when there's very little information out there and people are using a medication so that's why I sort of started it it wasn't that I was a major fan of transdermals it was just I was actually just annoyed that we didn't have any information on it people were using lots of transdermal drugs in in cats and and still do to a certain extent because cats are so notoriously difficult to tablet there was the idea that anything could just be made into a transdermal ointment and put on the ear of a cat and it would <laughs> absorb. So there was a while there that people were grinding up antibiotics and, and putting them um, into ointments and putting them in and, and, and that just doesn't work. There's a whole heap of pharmacology that needs to go through to actually work what will penetrate the skin. And so basically small drug molecules will penetrate the, the skin. So big antibiotic molecules don't really work. So I picked transdermal methimazole because that was a, um, you know, hypothyroidism being common. And at the time I picked, it was actually going to be transdermal carbimazole because carbimazole is what we had in New Zealand and, and that's what we were going to be looking at. And so we started developing a transdermal carbimazole to be absorbed because carbimazole is also a little bit more fatty and, and fatty molecules across the skin more. So, yep, that would be the... the now we know that we're in a vet podcast. Yeah, exactly. Everyone knows we're in a vet podcast. You can't be in a vet podcast without the, the barking creature. This is like we have when our Zoom. So carbimazole being fatty sort of crosses the skin better. And so we started with that. And then we realized that the drug that we... The, the, the fact that it was working and we could measure it in the bloodstream, the problem was that carbimazole when it went into this ointment was immediately being broken down into methimazole and it was methimazole that was crossing the skin. So we actually changed it to looking at transdermal methimazole. So at the time, we ended up with about four or five publications and it's one of the most researched cat transdermal drugs because of my PhD. There's a couple of other drugs that are getting close to the same number of publications. The basic thing was that we developed a new formula, the new ointment kind of stuff, and that absorbed better than the standard PLO gel, which is what most transdermal drugs are absorbed in. And that got patented and, and got picked up by BOMAC, which then got taken over by Bayer, which has now been taken over. The other thing that we worked out is that there is a bit of a safety concern because you have to remember this is a transdermal drug so you're putting it on the outside of the skin and so you've got to think about what the residues are in the ear of the cat particularly with cats you know stroking their ears and that sort of thing so is there actually ever yeah. going to be any left over that is going to be affecting an owner and 
we didn't specifically look at the red because there's ways you can look at residue in the ears so we didn't specifically look at that but what I did look at was that it could actually cross from the non-haired side it can actually cross through the cartilage and get slightly to the outside onto the haired skin so it's not a huge huge amount but it can cross a little bit in the models so we didn't look at that in the live cats so we're just looking at that from a safety point of view and methimazole is one of those drugs that that can cause some abortion in women and so you have to be a little bit careful when applying and, and wearing gloves and that sort of thing so i guess when i started my phd people were slapping these drugs on cat's ears without wearing gloves without sort of any safety concerns and now most of the time people will say wear gloves when applying and that sort of thing so i think we've caught up a little bit with that which is quite good um so i guess that's a long way to say yes it, it the transdermal methimazole does work it is one of the suite of things that you can use for treatment of hypothyroid cats it is good to use because if you cannot tablet a cat then it is a useful thing to treat a hypothyroid cat but when we talk about treatment of hypothyroid cats then each cat will be individual and you need to work out what the best treatment is for that particular cat so whether it might be medical treatment whether it's going to be iodine therapy or whether it's going to be surgery will depend on the the cat and the owner so when you first started the phd how did you know roughly how much methamazole to give them because i imagine in the very early stages of these sort of things you could imagine someone trialing an amount of methamazole and either not working at all or giving them a hundred times the dose that they actually need. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So good to know that there was good pharmacokinetics in, you know, in oral and IV dosing. So what we did is is we did it sort of a, a pilot trial and we did a pharmacokinetic trial looking at usual oral doses is, you know, five milligrams. So we looked at both five and 10 milligrams, which we knew 10 milligrams was going to be safe. So we trialed both of those doses. So it's sort of taking a educated guess looking at the pharmacokinetics that you've got out there with oral and then taking into consideration some bioavailability and and then doing a pharmacokinetic study so that's kind of what we ended up doing and the 10 milligram kind of dose worked out being a good dose five milligram will cross but 10 milligram was a good dose so whenever i hear the word phd it sends a shiver um, up my spine (laughs) because what i know of phds they take five years to do is is that the case with yours um yeah, mine was uh, yeah it was five or six years. I was also part time, so I was full time employed, working part time, doing my PhD. I ended up taking the final year out and just writing my PhD. I also had two kids through the PhD, and then the day I handed in my PhD, I gave birth to my third child. So my sister likes to say I gave birth to two things on the same day, which is probably about right. I don't recommend that pathway. That a lot of the things that I've done in my life, I do not recommend that pathway to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised there's not any grey hairs to be seen there. Oh, uh, yeah, there might be some that are buried, but yeah, there was um there was a bit of stress during that time, but it was it was pretty good. It was it, it ended up being all right. So <laughs> Yeah. Not to get too deep into the theory of things, but are there some clinical pills that you would say to clinicians about hypothyroidism? Yeah, probably my clinical pearls for hypothyroidism in cats is that we're learning more and more that we do need to individualize that therapy and certainly more and more about the fact that we need to keep them euthyroid, so keep them in the normal thyroid range because if they drop into the low or hypothyroid range, we certainly predispose those cats to developing kidney disease. 
And now that we have worked out that sort of kidney thyroid axis that they really go they're hand in hand, we know that we need to really make sure that their thyroid is not too low, otherwise we can precipitate worse kidney disease. So I'd say looking at good monitoring, monitoring blood pressure is another thing that probably doesn't commonly happen. So when you're monitoring those cats, sort of looking at blood pressure is really important for their kidneys as well. This is when you're starting them on the hypothyroid medication. Yeah, when when you're monitoring, once they've started and and then when you're getting them back in to, to check, then checking their blood pressure as well just to seeing seeing where that is because that can certainly precipitate worse you know kidney disease if they've got hypertension as well so we don't have to check all blood work every time but certainly blood pressure is something that we should be checking and and the good old history and physical exam is really important yeah so before i let you go kate for people that are interested in doing a masters of medicine where can they find out more and what would you recommend they do going forward if anyone's interested in any kind of postgrad, then certainly they can, you know, drop me a line, either email me or we've got the MVM website or email the MVM at, at massey.ac.nz email or myself, k.hill at massey.ac.nz. Happy to talk to anyone, either email or, or phone and, and discuss further options. I think it's, it's just key to say that's a program that sets you up for, for lifelong learning. You'll learn at the time but you're set up as to pique your curiosity for for lifelong learning and it could be people we've got people in their 60s that do it that have been out sort of 40 years and people that have been out you know a couple of years and so we've got the whole gamut of people that have been doing our taught courses and and you can just do one course just for interest if you want to but then people often then get the bug and continue on and end up with their full degree yeah I think if that's one thing that's common amongst most vets is that sort of intellectual curiosity and most vets do want that lifelong learning. Correct, yeah, and that's what keeps people interested in their careers by yeah, then working out those skills and working out how to find that, that information and, and giving yourself credibility that you know that you can do it yourself and you know, evidence-based medicine, that sort of thing. So um, that's, that's essentially what we're teaching. We're teaching people the you know, skills for, to you know, be an evidence-based practitioner and that's what we, we're hoping to create now. No, thanks for your time, Kate. All right. Okay, thanks very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.